Hope everybody is good. And to echo what um, Ed mentioned about Miguel and Kaylee's wedding, it really is special to be a part of days like yesterday. And you could just feel God's pleasure. And God's. we, we stood in, um, the wedding was out. Look, it was a little chilly, I'll tell you that much. I could see the bridal party were freezing. Um, but uh, we were standing out in God's creation. And I would say a fair percentage of of everyone who was attending loved Jesus and uh, you could just feel God's presence and his pleasure over the wedding and special to watch people do things the right way. Um, is my mic coming through nicely? Yeah? Okay, good. Would you mind if I just pray this morning and uh, then we're going to dive into this message. Father, thank you for your presence in this room. Thank you, God, for your presence for those who are watching online, God, and Thank you for your word, God, that just has the ability to get to places in our heart that no man can get to. So right now we take a moment to say that we want to look like you. We're grateful for you. But we want to be transformed into your image and changed into your likeness. And so would you help us, God? Our time here on earth is short. So I pray that we would be wise in your eyes and we would maximize every day as a gift from you. And so we thank you for this series and I pray that you would use it to speak to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the two-part series uh, is called Holy and Pleasing and it comes from a, a passage in the Bible from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I'm going to read it, then unpack it just a little um, and give you kind of a bird's eye view of the two-part series and then we're going to dive into this morning's talk. So Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Some versions, because the Bible is written in slightly different adaptions and uses slightly different words, some uh, versions end by saying this is your acceptable or your reasonable act of worship. And um, this passage basically starts off and says, in view of God's mercy. So therefore, I urge you. It's like you can feel the writer of Romans. Paul is like, I, if, if I could shake you, I would shake you. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Meaning, in, in view, when you count up, when you tally up everything that Jesus has done, when you look back on His grace and His mercy and His kindness, when you look at the sacrifice that we spoke about through the Easter series, where He sat in our garden and ran through the gauntlet, and, and, and when he, he went to the cross and, and rose from the grave, when, we, when you consider everything, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, when you consider everything in view of God's mercy. So when you reflect, this is how we should respond. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. And um, our bodies are important. Much of, much of the time, our faith, in some ways, and just hear me out as I set the, the premise here, like our faith feels like at first it's really just about what we believe. But God is saying, when you believe, then your body needs to follow what you believe. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, your eyes, your ears, your time, your effort, your energy, your resources. It matters. Offer those as living sacrifice. 
And pre-Jesus, you had to bring an atonement for your sins, which he did on the cross, with a dead sacrifice, a lamb, a pigeon, a dove. Now God's saying, you don't have to do that anymore, but what you can do or what you should do is offer your very bodies. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The word sacrifice means this, an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. Look, I thought I was going to bring the heat with this message, but then Tanner told you if you're going through pain, he's happy for you. So he really did set the premise for where we're going today. Um, And I thought he led worship, both of them led worship in the most incredible way this morning. You could feel the presence of God. But can I just say this? The idea of sacrifice is the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important. So I'm going to start here and say, when we don't offer our bodies up as living sacrifices, we've placed a higher value on our bodies than we have on the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Okay, we'll start there, like just as a starting place to kind of head out the starting blocks with the heat. But perhaps we need to ask ourselves, where have we placed a higher value? On me or on the, on the price that's been paid? What does it look like to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, the next two words give us some perspective. The next two words are to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. So what do you and I need to do? We need to offer our bodies back to God. And when we do that in the right, correct way, they look holy and they look pleasing. And next week, Scotty is going to be preaching And I don't know how many of you got to attend yesterday. We were obviously at a wedding, uh, but I believe it was an incredible event um, with Angus Buchan and in Hillcrest. uh, Just a real like um, line in the sand moment for our faith and for this community. And uh, Hamilton Ministries, which is what Scott and France are heading up, um, hosted Angus Buchan in Hillcrest. And so he's going to be preaching here next week, one of our elders. And he's going to be looking at the second word, pleasing. And uh, without giving too much away, Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about the fact that we cannot, it's impossible to please God without faith. And so he's going to be looking, how do we live to please God? Well, we must live with faith in our hearts. Many of us misunderstand the difference between belief and faith. We say, no, but I believe in God. God goes, yes, that's, that's your entry in, but God wants us to live by faith. And so he's going to be looking at that next week. And today we're going to be unpacking the idea of what it means to be holy. But before I ask questions like, what does it mean to be holy? And how do we even look holy or get holy? I love the way that this verse ends. So it says this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You want to know what it means to worship God? We should all be asking that question. How do I worship God on this side of eternity? The way that you worship God may be through a song, but it's not restricted to a song. It may be in attending a service, but it's certainly not restricted. If you want the definition of what it means to bring true and proper worship to God, it's to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. And so let's unpack the idea of what it means to be holy. 1 Peter 1 verse 16 makes a pretty outrageous statement if you don't understand the possibility of the statement. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples 
And he's actually quoting the Old Testament here in Leviticus. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, it says this, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Some versions say, Be holy as I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Now, before we can understand how we should be holy, we need to understand that He is holy because we emulate, we look like Jesus and you cannot be anything that he isn't. And, and I'm about to unpack what that looks like in a moment, what holiness looks like. But I must just take a pause and give all credits uh, to the Bible Project. If you have not ever watched a Bible Project video, I would strongly suggest that you jump on. They are some of the most remarkable, brilliant videos um, and I was nearly going to show you the video, but it was so good I didn't know how to preach off the back of it. So uh, I decided to rather steal some of its content. But the truth is the, the concept and the imagery is all from the Bible Project in this next little moment. But this passage, 1 Peter 1 verse 16, be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? For many of us, we write it off as morally good or morally perfect, but I think there's more to it. That God wants to show and our back desk guys are going to help me as we go through some imagery but perhaps the best way to describe this is describe God's holiness is to use the metaphor of a sun for all of us we know that the sun is like it's a source of life we know that it's extremely powerful but we also know it's dangerous like we know the closer you get to the sun, you're going to be in trouble. At some stage, the heat of the sun will burn you up. And holiness is very much the same in the fact that the closer we get to God, His holiness, it's dangerous. Not because it's bad, but because it's good. And so if we're marked with impurity, the closer we get to His holiness... It's dangerous for us unless we start to look at the impurities on the inside. And I'm going to take you through different aspects in the Bible, in the Old Testament, move our way through to the New Testament and show you why you and I would even want to walk in holiness. Why does God say be holy as I am holy? And the first account that we see where God reveals his holiness is where Moses has an encounter with a burning bush. Very similar to the sun or the fire analogy about the heat. And what happens is Moses gets there and he sees this burning bush, this phenomenon, and God is in the burning bush and God says what to him? God says, take off your shoes, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. He makes it clear to Moses that what is happening right now is a holy encounter. This is not normal. And then he starts to make a couple of statements. One of them, so Moses then takes off his sandals, covers his face, and then God says to him, don't come any closer. The idea of like, you're seeing my holy, but the closer you get to my holy, don't come any closer. For your own sake, stay right where you are, for I am holy. And then... We fast forward in the scriptures and we see this idea of the temple of God being set up. Some of you may be aware of this. This may be brand new information for some of you. But the temple gets set up and in the temple, there's a place or a room called the Holy of Holies. And everybody knew that in the Holy of Holies, you, you dare not go in unless you purified yourself. 
And it was like, it was for the elect few and they had to go through a whole bunch of rituals to make sure that everybody knew that you don't go into the Holy of Holies. If you go into the Holy of Holies and you're not holy, you aren't purified, then you die. People knew that. Okay? And what happened is that everybody, those wanting to enter into the temple of God, recognized this idea of purification. I need to get right. I need to get pure. Some of you are just grateful going like, ooh, imagine, imagine that was me today. We'd have a whole bunch of people just like sprawled across the floor here. You know, you're like, thank God we're living under grace and post-Jesus. Um, but this idea of purity became very clear to everybody. In order to go into the holy place... I need to purify myself. Now, there were two bits of purification. There was morally pure, which most of us understood and was absolutely part of the purification. Make sure that you are morally holy, morally pure. But there was another part of this purity, and that was to be ritually pure. The idea of being ritually pure was this. The state of where you separate yourself from anything related to death. So like Leviticus is an entire book like put together with a whole bunch of rules about what the people of God could and couldn't do, what they should touch, what they shouldn't touch. And this idea of being ritually pure had all of these instructions throughout the scriptures making sure that you don't touch death. You go nowhere near death. So anything that was like skin disease or dead bodies or even certain like bodily fluids, like don't have anything to do with them And the concept was, because if you touch them, that dead thing, there's a transition from that dead thing to you. It makes you impure. Don't touch death. It will make you impure. Okay? Fast forward. Stay with me here. Hundreds of years later, Prophet Isaiah has this vision. You can find it in Isaiah chapter 6. And he's in the temple in this vision. And it is, you're aware by what you're reading that he's aware that he shouldn't be in the temple. He knows the rules. He's like, there's a, I should not be here and still be alive. I should not be in the holy spot, in the temple. And then this incredible phenomenon happens in the vision. And that is an angel comes down and takes a coal and touches his lips. And there is this statement that's made by the angel. And it is, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's this incredible transition that happens in the scriptures where all of a sudden, Isaiah is declaring, yes, so pre pre this, everything you touched that had death made you impure. Now there's something pure that touches you, and it makes you pure. This is the idea of the coal, okay? Now we're going to fast forward just a little to this idea that, uh, let me just say in uh, the slide that will come up next, 
for Isaiah, this was an insane thought because up until that time, the impurities affected you. Now there's this incredible change around where Isaiah sees the purity of this coal touching him. Now, last Old Testament thought, and that is we fast forward to Ezekiel, another prophet, and he too has this vision and he sees the temple of God. Okay? And what he starts to see is he starts to see water trickling out of the temple of God. And this water that's starting to come out of the temple of God starts to move from just a trickle to a stream and then a river. And in this vision, everything that Ezekiel is seeing is wherever this river goes, it brings life. So it's going and all of a sudden there's green and there's life and there's fruit. And this river ends up where? In the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is turned to life. And Ezekiel's going like, man, this is, this is bizarre. This is different to everything that we know. Now, instead, so instead of being made pure first and then going into the temple, now what's happening is God's holiness is going out from the temple and making everything pure and bringing new life. Are you with me? So there's this incredible like change that's going on. And, and for these guys up until this point, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, they're all having these encounters and visions, but they don't really know how to land all this thinking. They're still living going, we need to make ourselves ritually and morally pure. Then we can. But there's all of these visions and these thoughts and these prophetic words that are going on. And then Jesus arrives. And Jesus starts to make some outrageous claims, which we know are true. The first is that Jesus claims that he is fulfilling all the old prophecies in the Old Testament. And he's a fulfillment of the visions that people like Isaiah the prophet and Ezekiel the prophet have declared. Then he takes it a step further. And part of his life is that he starts to walk around and touch dead things. So he touches the woman with the issue of blood. Remember, forbidden, because dead things come this way. But he touches the lady with the issue of blood, and she's healed. Then he goes and he touches the lepers. Remember, disease, skin, death, they they were outcast. He touches the lepers. People's minds were being blown. Then he sees Lazarus, his friend, die and arrives and walks in with confidence and touches dead Lazarus and Lazarus rises. And Jesus is making this prophetic statement that he's the coal that Isaiah saw. That purity could not, purity from God, his holiness, has the ability to bring life. But he takes it a step further. He doesn't leave it there. He says, my disciples, he gathers them around, you and I. He gathers them around and he says this to them. You go. You go pray for the sick. You go touch dead things. You go bring life where there isn't life. And then he begins to describe us, his people, his followers, as the temple of God. And then he says, in this temple, he'll put the holy Spirit. And then in the scriptures, the scriptures begin to write that we as the people of God will have rivers 
of living water flow out of us. We're the walking fulfillment of Ezekiel and Isaiah because everywhere we go, life is flowing out of us. Fast forward to the book of Revelation, which is the last bit of prophetic fulfillment that still needs to take place. And in the book of Revelation, it refers to Ezekiel's river. And it says that that river is going to flow. And His holiness is going to cover the earth. And it's this prophetic statement that yes, times are going to get dark and debauched and messed up, but my holiness is going to flow. And so this is the invitation of holiness. I don't know about you, but this excites me. Because you know how often I, and I'm sure you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, that's written, be holy as I am holy. I read it like this. Be holy as I am holy. We read it like a reprimand. But it's an invitation. It's an invitation to live a life where the rivers of living water flow out of our temple and everything was dry and everything that was barren and everything that was broken and everything that was dead sees the life of the Holy Spirit and the holy power of the kingdom of God. Isn't that incredible? Honestly, go and watch the video. It does it far better than than I just did it right now. But but it is, for me, I, I just think to myself like, When you get to the end of my life, you're going to get to the end of your life. What a tragedy if we thought that holiness or following Jesus was just about being, was just moralism. Was just about being better than somebody next to me. That's not, I'm not discarding moralism. We'll speak about that in a moment because I think that, that that plays a part. But I think that many of us have subscribed, whether we know it or not, have subscribed to a Christian faith that is about bad people becoming good instead of dead things becoming alive. If, If you think that being a Christian is about being a good person and not being an alive person, somebody sold you short on the gospel. The gospel is about being a temple of the Holy Spirit where the rivers of living water are going to flow through you and me and we're just going to see life everywhere we go. Just the other day, and I know, and I keep sharing these things and some of you are still, I know, there's a a lot of like skepticism around some of these. Last last couple of weeks ago, I spoke about my petrol gauge going the other way. Two weeks ago, our aircon in our car broke and... um, if you're like Roger Gregg or myself, aircon is an absolute essential. Like, I just feel like I'm suffocating in the car. And I don't know what it is about a broken aircon, but even if you got the cold air on, it still feels like it's eating you with hot air. Does anybody else, like, just, like... And so I'm like, Allah's been busy, and I'm like, I need to get down there. And for two weeks, it's blown hot air at us. And every day, I just still turn it on, it still blows hot air at me. And two days ago, we got into the car, and I turned it on, and the aircon just started flowing again. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I'm skeptical. That's okay. I just think that God can make dead things, even like air cons, come alive. Don't laugh. I'm serious. That's fine. You stay with your dead air con and go pay 600 bucks. I'm going to believe that God can do miracles, like make dead things come alive, even my stupid air con that I need. 
He knows how precious that is to me and how much I need it. And so I just, I want to invite you to a life of holiness, to a life that is rich and full and full of the presence of God. And so that's why 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy life. It's an invitation, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and His grace. The reason He calls you to be holy is because of His purpose that He has over our lives. And I kind of see it like this. Because some of us... See, it's, it's a bit of a mind-bender because God has, by, by, by His death... He's made us holy, so we are holy, but we're being made holy. We are a new creation, but we're being transformed into that new creation. And so, yes, God died on the cross, Jesus died and made us holy by that act, but the truth is that there's still some holiness in my life that needs to catch up to everything that Jesus has made me. I kind of see it like a sieve. This might not be the best analogy, but it's the one I got for you today. I see it like a sieve, and I see the presence of God from heaven pouring through that sieve. Our sieve the sieve is our lives, and you want the purity of that water or that heaven's pouring out to come through that sieve and into people's lives. The problem is when there's a lack of holiness in our lives, when there's mud in the sieve, then what happens is there's a blockage of flow. And so, yes, God has made you holy, but our actions make us muddy. Our decisions make the flow of God less conducive to this outpouring. And what happens is what ends up coming through is not purified. It's not, it's not, it's not to the fulfillment and it's not to the richness that God wants through our lives. And so for all of us, we have to ask this question, how do I get holy? Well, Psalm 24 verse 3 or 4 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus made holiness possible by the sacrifice on the cross. There's no doubt about it. But we now, we now need to make sure that we live with clean hands and a pure heart. And I'll tell you the story. I shared this at Open Chapel a little while ago. There was a guy by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. He was born in 1818. And he was born into a time where women were dying at a rapid rate. And the reason they were dying is that one in every six women were dying at childbirth. And so he grew up and he became a doctor. And he started to study what was going on because it was horrific. Imagine today, one in six women didn't make childbirth. It's, it's horrific. And so he starts to study, and he finds something that he believes is potentially the answer to why these women are dying. And what he finds is that these doctors are going to the morgue, and they're dealing with dead people, and then they're going straight from that, and they're giving, helping bring life into the world. And so he... He does a little test over a certain period of time with about 50 doctors where he says to them, all I'm going to do, all I'm asking you to do is wash your hands. Would you just clean your hands? And the number moved from one in six to one in 50. Simply by washing your hands. Now, he hadn't managed to convince everybody and so he's at a conference and he stands up and he delivers this speech. He says, this fever is caused by decomposed, uh, decomposed material conveyed to the womb. I've shown how it can be prevented. I've proven all I've said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. 
I'm not asking you to do anything world shaking. I'm asking you to wash. For God's sake, wash your hands. This is a true story. And I wonder if God himself is speaking to his church and going, there is death and decay around us. I'm not asking you to do anything world-shaking, church, my people, my followers, my disciples. For God's sake, just wash your hands. Make sure that you've got clean hands and a pure heart so that the Holy Spirit can pour through you, the temple of God, and rivers of living water can flow into your communities, into your streets, into your shopping centers, into your schools, into your workplaces, and into your families. Why is there not a move of God? It's not because God doesn't want to move because he's looking for those with clean hands and a pure heart. So I have to question myself as I assume you have to question yourself. And that is, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Where have I grown complacent with sin thinking it's not that big a deal? Are we carrying life or death with our hands? And so, let me as we land this thought today speak a little bit about what holiness is and isn't. Holiness doesn't tolerate sin. Let's make that clear. Grace will help you overcome sin. Holiness doesn't tolerate it. We have to have a standard in order to rely on grace that empowers us to uphold the standard. But we can't drop the standard of God in order to appease ourselves or to appease the world around us. In the world that we live in, everything is becoming like tolerated. Everything. You just have to turn on the TV and see programs encouraging adultery, fornication, abortion, lying, cheating, stealing, foul language, drugs and alcohol abuse. Add social media and music to that equation and our eyes and our ears are bombarded on every side by our unholy activity. Ungodly living is encouraged, embraced, and expected in today's world. And some of us, we need to do a deep cleanse. I don't know if you've ever done this at home, um, but like every, like whatever, I don't know how long, every year you should get somebody to come and do a deep clean of your carpets and your couches. I don't know if you've ever seen what ends up in those and you're like, damn, I've been living in that. Like I've been breathing that stuff in. Some of you need to ask the Holy Spirit to do a deep clean because you don't even realize the stuff that the Holy Spirit wants to take care of in your lives. And it's not a be holy. It's a be holy. So you get to see the rivers of living water flow out of your souls. So I want to just talk to you about this idea of sin management versus sin eradication. A lot of Christians don't want to be free of their sin. They just don't want to be guilty of it. So we've got like this sin management policy. It's like, how do I, ooh, I'm feeling a little bit guilty about this. I've got to figure it out. I wrote this. We live in a culture where it's more important not to feel bad than it is not to be bad. So I, the, the problem is I feel bad right now. How do I get rid of this? It's like, no, no, let me tell you what, why you feel bad. And I've done this a little, the last little while. It's a running joke on our staff. They call 
Hilt, because he is gracious and kind, and I've got a lot to learn from him. We call him Pastor Soft Serve, because um, he's just delicious and kind, and they call me Pastor Concrete. Um, but, I, but like, I'll tell guys, like, you know, I'm just feeling guilty or bad. I'm like, that's because you are bad. You, you know when you don't feel guilty or bad, when you haven't done anything wrong? Stop worrying so much about the guilt and the bad and, and stop being bad. I'm not, I'm not being ugly. I'm, I'm just trying to help you walk in the holiness of God so that the rivers flow out of your life. This is not a moralism, let's step it all up so that we're all good and can polish our halos. This is an urgent matter of heaven because death and decay are running rampant and for God's sake, wash your hands, church. And so I see people come in and this is their strategy, sin management versus sin eradication. I hope this challenges you like Tanner spoke about earlier. And that is what will happen is guys will go, okay, I've messed up in this area. Ooh, that's a problem. Okay. And I, I don't doubt the sincerity. I just doubt the, pro, the approach. Okay, so what happens is, go, oh my gosh, I've got to get rid of social media because that was my fall. Or, okay, I can't go drinking with those buddies or like whatever it is. And we like sin management happens. Okay? And then we, we go for the next month or two. Hey, and we, we're feeling like proper holy now, you know? Like I'm like, I'm dominating this sin. Look at me. The problem is, if you understand scripture, the devil came to Jesus, tempted him three times. Jesus didn't fall. And then there's an interesting statement. It says the devil left him for a more opportune time. So what actually happens, and I know this is very disappointing for any of us that have put sin management in, is we get rid of social media and we think we're heroes. The devil ducks. You're like, look at me. I'm overcoming sin. He's like, I'm not even there, buddy. I'm just waiting for you to put Instagram back on your phone and then I'm coming at you. Because sin management doesn't help. Sin eradication is what God's looking for. Some of us need to do like the scriptures say. Gouge out our eye. Now, we can argue back and forward like how literal this is. But one thing I can tell you is it's damn serious. God wants you to know, get your attention, it's radical. It's life and death. Do whatever it takes. I wrote this statement down. Where is it? On page four, which is the last page. For those of you that are feeling, is it coming to an end? Do something drastic to your sin or it will do something drastic to you. Stop treating sin like it's your pet. We want temporary solutions to eternal problems. As long as you tolerate, ignore, and justify your sin, you will carry death when this world needs life. Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 says, You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Sin has a plan. What's yours? Sin has a plan. It's waiting, crouching at your door every day. And the Bible says that we need to master it. Now, I don't know about you, but the only way, I am not holy. He's holy. It's His holiness. Every time I try and master 
in my own strength, he masters me. But when I truly let the master sit on the throne in my life, Jesus, his holiness drives out sin. I'm not saying don't put in triggers. I'm not saying don't get rid of social media. I'm the first one to shout out those things. I'm just saying that many of us, what we really need to get a revelation of is that it's His holiness, it's His Holy Spirit, it's His holy presence that makes us holy. So there is no substitute for the presence of God. You know, this um, passage that we read from Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, uh, who may still stand on his holy ground, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you go read verse 1 and 2, and the rest that goes down to verse 10, let me summarize it for you quickly, because we're running out of time. Basically, the first two verses say this, God's magnificent. The whole earth belongs to him. He made it. He's There's a grandeur about him. There's a magnificence about him. There's a largeness about him. Basically, the way that we get clean hands and pure heart is to understand how glorious and magnificent our master is. Then goes on and says that our job is to seek his face, to go hard after Jesus, to pursue the holiness of God. And then it says, open up these gates, open up your hearts, lift up your heads, let the King of glory in. The only way that we're going to pour rivers out of our lives, the only way we're going to get rid of sin in our lives is when we sit and pursue the presence of holy God. Revere Him. Be holy as He is holy. Spend time in the presence of God. Ask Him. I know this is bizarre, like, but on, just ask Him to make you holy. Ask Him, say, God, I, I want to be used by you. Rivers of living water. I'm going to spend time with the Holy Spirit. And there's an impartation that takes place. And no church service can do that. Church services are amazing and necessary and biblical. But you are a temple God and the temple of God needs the holy of holies and when the holy of holies is in you sin has to flee some of you will find freedom from your sin by doing nothing else but sitting in the presence of God you look back in six months ago it's a it's a miracle and then you know what's going to happen those rivers are going to flow through your life because you've seen the dead in you be raised. You've seen the dead in you be healed. And those rivers are going to flow through your life. Can I pray for you? Do you mind closing your eyes? would love to just pray a prayer today for anybody who perhaps you're saying, hey, Cole, I don't really know Jesus. I mean, I know about him, been to church maybe, maybe even call myself a Christian, but I don't know this Jesus that you talk about. Maybe you, like Moses, need a burning bush experience, an encounter with the living God who is holy and gracious and kind and full of truth. So everybody's eyes closed. We'd love to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus, to give your life to Jesus. 
Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. Everybody's eyes closed, not to embarrass you, but to give you an opportunity right now. Would you be brave enough just to stick your hand in the air and say, Cole, I need to pray that prayer this morning. You can pop it straight up and pop it straight back down. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. I saw at least two hands go up. There may have been more. Won't you repeat this? Thank you. Awesome. Won't you repeat this after me? Just a simple prayer. Surrendering our lives and asking Jesus to come in and be Lord and Savior. Dear Lord Jesus, today I surrender. Thank you for dying on a cross, for taking my sin and my shame and nailing it to that cross once and for all. Jesus, today I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.